At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Noon, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, as you go there, uh, if I could just remind us with the upticks in COVID cases, uh, we want to remain very uh, careful in how we conduct our services because for us, it's a big priority that we be able to remain open. And so thank you to all of you who have uh, safely been congregating. We had the last four months where things have gone really well, uh, but we have to remain vigilant. And so uh, if you would just continue, uh, if you, first of all, if you stayed home, if you have, uh, you know, symptoms uh, of, of some kind, uh, but also wear your masks in and out of the building and any shared spaces, uh, that's very important. And also, and this is uh, very important as well, is please do not linger. Do not congregate here after the service. This is one of the things that I have hated the most about this season. I loved just how we got to talk here and in the lobby after the services, but we just can't afford right now to have a spreading event uh, because we stay here for a few moments. So after the services, please take your fellowship outside to a restaurant or in a place where you can congregate safely with just a few people. Uh, it's so important that we remain all united in this because, as I said, uh, for us, the number one priority is that we may be able, Lord willing, to continue having these services on Sundays. Uh, also, in two weeks, November 29th, we're going to begin our Christmas series, and it's called Gift Wrapped. From longing to lavished. We're going to be looking at the covenants that God has made with humanity. So we're going to be looking at passages from the Old Testament, the New Testament, just to see how God has committed himself to us through covenant uh, through the centuries, uh, really millennia now, to bring about the promises that he has for us in Christ. I'm so looking forward to this. November 29th, it begins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for everyone with the coronavirus right now, especially those with complications. Father, heal them, strengthen them, have mercy on them. Lord, we pray for everyone with the virus of sin who are totally unaware of it. Father, they will die in their sins unless you save them, unless you send us with the word of Christ, unless you open their hearts by your Spirit. So, Lord, use this word today as an agent of salvation, an agent of healing, because we all need your saving word. Father, I need your strength right now, your spirit, to be a faithful vessel of this holy word. And I pray that you would help your people, because they need your spirit and your help to receive this word. We trust you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, the apostle says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. So Sunday, March 8th, 2020 was our last gathering here together, you know, as the current COVID crisis was finally hitting home. On Thursday, March 12th, we made the decision to suspend our in-person services. And we were in the middle of our series in Ephesians. But we wanted to speak directly to the magnitude of the crisis and the fear that was beginning to descend upon our people. So on Friday, March 13th, I wrote a sermon on Jesus, the disciples, and the storm that we read about in the Gospels. Now, when Anne and I were training our children as toddlers to receive discipline from us, not by throwing a tantrum, but by understanding that they were the safest when they obeyed our instruction, Anna used their baby dolls to show them the pattern. Anna would talk to the baby doll. She would say, oh baby, you did not obey mommy. Mommy said come and you did not come. So you need to receive your discipline. And she would take the doll and put her in a lap and swat her with a tool and then put her back to herself with a hug affirming her love for her. And our toddlers would watch with intensity and curiosity, and then later on we would find them in the rooms playing with the baby doll, oh baby, you not obey, wham, wham, wham. <laughs> now what were we doing, mostly Anna, with those reenactments? We were practicing with our children, helping them understand pain in a safe environment, because as long as they're alive, they will experience pain and grief. The US military does something similar. They have these enactments, these war enactments, not reenactments as they do in parts of the South about the Civil War, but enactments, simulations. They spend billions of dollars in this, putting our troops under the same conditions that they would encounter in war. And they have to work on strategy and tactics and communication and survival. These advanced simulations prepare our troops for real life combat. And so here I come back to Jesus, the disciples, and the storm. Jesus, it's a powerful story. We read about it in the Gospels. But Jesus orders the disciples to get on a boat. They are crossing a lake. And as they're crossing this lake, a furious storm descends upon them so intense that the disciples, many of whom were experienced fishermen, began, began to fear for their lives. We use this story of the storm and we apply it to the storms of our lives and we find great refuge, comfort, and solace in the fact that Jesus calmed the storm with the word. But we neglect the fact that it was Jesus who led them into the storm. He gave orders to them to get into the boat and as they were getting ready to cross, someone comes along and says that he wants to follow Jesus, but he has all these reasons, all these excuses why he can't follow right now. And then we read in Matthew 8, then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him without warning. 
a furious storm came up. Jesus took the disciples in the direction of the storm, and his true followers followed him there. Others did not. They made excuses. And it was in that context of the storm and the fear um, and panic that, that struck the disciples that he began to open their mind about who he really was, that he was the true shepherd of their souls who would get them through that storm and every other storm they would encounter because, precisely because, they were his followers. You see, this was a real-life simulation of the kind of storm that they were going to go through after he returned to the Father. He was training them in suffering. There is suffering that you will face because you follow Jesus. And all along, the Lord will get you ready. He's constantly doing this with us. Peter was there on that boat. And Peter is the one who's teaching us today. The believers in Christ will suffer for doing good. Believers in Christ will suffer for doing good. This is our last sermon in this series, Unshakable. And I don't think that we could finish on a higher note than the text that we have before us today. So we're going to dig in and learn this important lesson that it is. Believers in Christ will suffer for doing good. First, find the grace in the suffering. Find the grace in the suffering. Look at verse 18. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Okay, let's pause there for a second. In the flow of Peter's letter, he uses the first chapter and a half to build for us this wonderful theology of our identity in Christ as people who belong to the kingdom of God. We've been talking about this. People who have been born again to a living hope, to an imperishable inheritance in the heavens. People who are loved by God chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And it's from within this robust identity as chosen exiles, chosen by God, exiled by the world, that in chapter 2, verse 11 and on, Peter begins to exhort us to win the battle within. You recall when we talked about this. Because if we win the battle within, then our engagement with the culture will have a distinct Christian aroma that will help people turn their lives around and give glory to God. And so Peter begins to exhort us about what it means to live lives of submission to our human institutions. And so first, we saw this two weeks ago, he talks to us about our relationship to government. And we said then, well, he said, and we learned, that we are to honor the emperor. Well, now he turns his attention to two of the members of society that received the least dignity and respect, servants and women. So first he addresses servants. And the word for servant, translated servant there, refers to the word for slaves, which was a very widespread practice in the Roman world. At least a quarter of the population were slaves. In some cities, up to two-thirds of them were slaves. Now, let me read you from a biblical scholar what he says about slavery in uh, the first century Roman world. Here's what he says. People became slaves by being captured in wars, kidnapped, or born into a slave household. Those facing economic hardship might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Many slaves lived miserably, particularly those who served in the mines. Other slaves, however, served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated 
than the master. Now, people in the West, in the 21st century, us, uh, often ask, why is the New Testament not stronger in its denunciation, condemnation of slavery? Now, let me make just four quick comments about that. First, early Christians did not have the size or political or economic clout, power, to overthrow slavery. The, the churches in Jerusalem and later on in the Mediterranean were small house churches. The church began to grow rapidly, but that's after the time when the New Testament was written. And so the idea that these small churches, these Christians could overthrow slavery is as ludicrous or outlandish as it would be for us to think that the Jews today in America, a very small part of the population, could overthrow capitalism. That's just not going to happen. Also, the New Testament never commends slavery. Rather, it instructs the followers of Jesus to commend their Savior in whatever social institution or situation they find themselves in. And we'll see more about that in a minute. Additionally, the New Testament teaches that if the kingdom of God dwells within us and we win the battle within against sin, then Christians can become an influence, a significant influence that helps transform social structures. If God so wills it, that's very important, the qualifier. Christians do not always get to change the social structures around them. Just think of so many Christians, millions of them, throughout the world. But the kingdom of God always begins small, in the heart, without political clout. And any changes, in any transformations that take place in the larger society as a result of the gospel are always just a few generations away from lapsing back into darkness. Because the transformation of the earth and its cultures will only fully happen with the return of the king. Finally, Jesus himself, who is the son of God and Lord of lords, took the role of a slave. And instructed all of his followers, not just the slaves, all of them to see themselves as slaves of God. As servants to God. And what that does is it raises the dignity of slaves and of everyone else who finds themselves on the margins of society. And it lowers the pride of those with privilege. So with that in mind, let's read one more time what Peter says to slaves in verse 18. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, suffering in our lives comes from many places. It comes from illness, viruses, it comes from age, it comes from live circumstances. It also comes from sin. We bring it upon ourselves. But there's a specific kind of suffering that Peter is addressing in this letter. And that is the suffering that comes for bearing, bearing the name of Christ. In fact, the letter of Peter, 1 Peter 3, is one of the only three times in the entire Bible, the entire New Testament, that mentions the word Christian. And he says, if you suffer as a Christian, right? <sighs> Slaves had good and bad masters. And the challenge for them, for the Christian house slaves, was to obey their crooked masters, their, their unjust masters. There was a double challenge that they had. The first challenge was to, do, to be good and do good work for a master they felt like didn't deserve it. I mean, we can see that in our employee-employer relationships today. Right? 
sometimes you see that this kind of attitude from uh, less than ideal employees, right? They'll say like, I'm not killing myself for this company. No way, Jose. Okay, don't kill yourself. But what about doing creative work, inspired work, you know, great work? You, you owe that to them. They're your employer, right? So that's the first challenge is just to do good work. But the second challenge is to do good work when you have a bad or nasty boss. That's really challenging. A bad or unjust or crooked master. I mean, some of you have worked under these circumstances and it's a trial in your life. I mean, to work for a boss that is either incompetent or full of themselves or demeaning or all three, that's tough. And oftentimes when that's our situation, we look for work somewhere else. Your boss does something uncalled for, that night, you're on LinkedIn, you know, just seeing what else is out there. But slaves in the first century Roman world did not have that luxury. They were in many ways stuck. And so Peter is writing to tell these Christian slaves, you're not stuck. You can endure suffering, unjust suffering, without sinning, because you're mindful of God, he says to them. And when they respond with that kind of endurance... Peter tells them twice, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why is it gracious? It's gracious because when we respond to unjust suffering in this way, we show that the kingdom of God truly has come to us. The kingdom of God has truly changed us. It really dwells within us. You know how hard it is to respond in a godly way when you are falsely accused or when you are falsely wronged. And that's precisely what Peter is saying. It's like, hey, if you do wrong and you're punished for it, well, so, so what? He says it's when you do good, especially for the name of Christ, and you are punished. You receive wrong. In that time, if you're able to endure entrusting yourself to God, that is a gracious thing because it shows that the gospel has truly transformed you. But it's also a gracious thing because as we respond in the ways that God has for us in his kingdom, God lavishes favor on us. He lavishes grace upon grace upon grace. And so grace is both our power and our reward. So if you want to measure to what degree the kingdom of God has come into your life, just look at how you respond to unjust suffering. Find the grace in the suffering. Number two, follow the ways of Jesus through the suffering. So now we come to perhaps the four most important verses in this entire letter. These verses represent the height of Peter's Christology, by which I mean the way that Peter thought about Jesus. And a question that arose for me as I was looking at this was, why would Peter put the, some of the most important verses that he has in the whole letter about Jesus in this section when he's addressing slaves, right? I mean, he's been talking to slaves, be submissive to your masters, uh, respond in a good way, and so forth. And then he starts talking about Jesus in the most exalted, amazing ways. It's almost like he's making Jesus there subservient to the slaves. But you see what Peter is doing. What he's saying is Jesus, the Lord of all, traveled a road of unjust suffering. And that's how he brought the kingdom of God to fulfillment. And so when you slaves, Christian slaves, but really all Christians, when you respond to unjust suffering without sinning, you break the lust of power, lust for control that's so typical in our age. We learn so much about Jesus in these verses. Look at verse 21. 
He says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that, so that you might follow in his steps. We've been called to follow in the steps of Christ, specifically his suffering. In his suffering, Jesus left us an example, he says. That word translated example is very important because it refers to a pattern of letters that children who are learning to ride would trace over. See? Kind of like a mold. That mold is what Christ has left for us. It's a wonderful image. You see, Jesus is not just one example of many. He is the mold into which we learn to fit all of our lives. His steps are the path into which we learn to walk. And the specific shape of Christ that we are to grow into for the rest of our lives is his suffering. His suffering for us. This is so profound. There is nothing like it in any of the ideologies or philosophies of the world. In, at any time in history. Try to find it. So look at what it says in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Do you know where Peter got this language? Just keep that language that we just read in mind. He got it from Isaiah 53. So if you want to go there, go to Isaiah 53. Keep your place in Peter because we're going to read a section. I want you to see this. This is a prophecy from Isaiah. This is the most famous servant song in Isaiah. Isaiah has a number of servant songs. This is the most famous of them. Written six, seven centuries before Jesus. So enigmatic. So powerful. Isaiah 53, verse 3. I'm just reading you one section from it. The prophet says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This passage is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And yet for centuries, the Jews could not figure out what it was talking about, who it was referring to. 
And so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, Peter is able to understand it, to put it together, to see that Isaiah 53, this passage written six, seven centuries before Christ, was talking about Jesus, about his suffering, about what his death would do for us. Peter was able to understand the events of Holy Week, the passion of Jesus, in light of Isaiah 53. And so he tells us, Jesus committed no sin. Nothing in his life was impure, morally corrupt. Not one thing, not one thought, not one feeling. All of it was in alignment with the righteousness of God. None of the suffering he endured was the result of sin. All of it was unjust. Neither was the seed found in his mouth. He tells us they never trapped him in his words. He never twisted the truth. He never lied or hid behind false words, false claims. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. The Jewish Sanhedrin slandered him. Roman guards ridiculed him. One of the thieves on the cross and other passersby heaped insults on him. And yet he made no reply. He made no threat. He says when he suffered, he did not threaten. Like a sheep being led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He just took the punishment. And continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. All of that unjust suffering was coming upon him wave after wave. And he just continued to entrust himself to his father, which is why he was able to say about the guards that were nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And before he breathed his last, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He entrusted himself to God. And Peter tells us, to this you've been called, Christian, because Christ suffered for you. To this suffering, to understanding this suffering and leaving you an example you should follow in his steps. As we go through hard things, the reason we're able to endure them with grace it's because Jesus went before us. He went ahead of us. He made the mold into which now we fit. Much as we want to bust it and go a different direction. We don't like suffering, especially if it's unjust. But Peter says, there is no other way. It's what you've been called to as a chosen son, daughter of God. And so finally, focus on the overseer of your soul. Peter explains the death of Jesus now in verse 24. One of my favorite verses. You, you need to circle it. Highlight it. Do whatever you want to it. But it's an amazing verse. Look at what he says. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. I don't know there's a, a clearer one verse that articulates the gospel for us. Isaiah had told us that the suffering servant from God would be crushed 
for our iniquities. But for a long time, they didn't know how, when, when does this happen? And so Peter points specifically to a time, specifically to a place when this took place, when this happened. He says it was in his body on the tree. In his body on the tree. On the cross. Jesus bore our sin and was crushed for it. And the result of his suffering, of his wounds, is our healing. Our healing. Just think on the many wounds on the body of Jesus. His back and his legs lacerated. His hands and feet pierced through with nails. His face swollen from all the beatings. His head punctured through with thorns and bleeding. There was a necessity and a purpose for each one of those wounds. You! It was for you. It was for me. You have wounds that run, listen to me, you have wounds that run so deep that nothing of human origin or creation can touch them. Nothing. And I don't know why you carry so much pain. I don't know why you feel so bad about yourself. Such self-loathing, such shame. I don't know why it's difficult for you to have healthy human relationships. Why it's difficult for you to be known and to know others and to know love. Not lust, love. Protective, self-giving, unbreakable love. I don't know why you're stuck. You want to be farther along in your walk with the Lord, but sin seems to have the upper hand and the things of this world just keep pulling you with gravitational force to them away from God. All of these are wounds and they are real. They come from the depths of your sin. They come from the depths of your affliction that others have inflicted upon you. And they run deep. As David says in the Psalms, my wounds stink and fester. Do you feel it? Do you feel it in your own life, in your own body? Do you feel it in your own mind? Because we go after all kinds of things that only make those wounds bigger. Whether it's sex or a relationship with somebody or a career and money and prestige and more, more, more. Just people to, to like us and to think highly of us. Whatever it may be, experiences that we think are going to leave us so full and they leave us festering. Do you feel it? Have you cried out, how? How can I be made whole? The wounds on the body of Jesus is how God is healing your wounds. As real as those wounds were on his body, so is your healing. If you come to him, you must come to him by faith, not just long ago, whenever you did that, Today, today you must come to him by faith and fully embrace him. And as real as those wounds were on his body and he still has the scars to prove it. You will see them when you see him in all eternity. As real as those wounds are, so is your healing. Think of the night of Jesus' arrest. His body was wholesome healthy, nothing wrong with it, no stain, no blemish, 
He had no blemish on his soul. And then they bring him to this wicked council of leaders bent on his destruction. And the first person strikes him on the face for his answer that he was the son of God, of the living God, that he was the Christ. The first fist landed with such force that maybe almost knocked him off balance. That first wound, and he knew their healing has begun. By his wounds, we are healed. And then for the next 12 plus hours, wound after wound, scorn after scorn, it's filling up everywhere in his body. All of that is happening for you, for me. So that we would know that there was a time and a place when our redemption was achieved. When our salvation was accomplished. When our iniquities were crushed. Do you think he felt any joy in those long hours of wounds coming everywhere of his body? I think so. Hebrews 12 tells us. For the joy, for the joy said before him, he endured the cross. They just think about this one after the other, pummeling his body. Joy. In all of that pain, there's a deep seated joy that he knows you and I. We'll spend eternity with him completely healed from the things that we have done to ourselves, the things others have done to us, the things we've done to others. Healed, forgiven, gone. If you have faith in Jesus, that healing has begun, but it's not finished, and I know you know that. But it will be when you see him face to face. You're going to see those scars as well. Your perfection. Done. This is why Peter says in verse 25, For you are strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We were strained like sheep. Some of you are still strained. You're going far, far, far away from God. You're going after cisterns that hold no water. You're going after promises of fulfillment and riches and pleasure that will leave you empty, festering. But Peter says, return. Have you returned to the shepherd, to the overseer of your soul who died for you to heal you, who suffered unjustly for you to show you the pattern, the only pattern that breaks the lust for power and control in this age? Have you returned to him? Peter came full circle. Peter came full circle when Jesus began to predict his death and he brought in the disciples, Peter and the rest. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter had no category for the king of the universe dying. For the king of the universe giving his life. You're the Messiah. We're with you because we're going to win. Yes, by dying, 
by suffering. And so he went from that now. He has this deep and lofty theology and understanding of the wounds of Christ, the suffering that he took for us. And so he tells us, you church were called to this because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so here we come back to Jesus, the disciples, and the storm because Jesus led them into that storm. He was training them in suffering. He was training them to know for the next For the rest of their lives, they were going to suffer and go from storm to storm to storm, but he would be there for them. There is no victory except through the cross. Have you returned to the shepherd of your soul? Are you able to say, the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You see, the shepherd is the only one who knows where the green pastures are for each one of us. We think we know. We don't know. We make every decision convinced. Oh, lush. Such great pastures I've chosen for myself. We don't know it's a cliff we're running Which is why the shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures. Did you, do you see that in the Psalm 23? He makes us lie down in green pastures. He doesn't just gently lead us there. Sometimes, many times he does that. So gentle. Other times he makes us lie down in green pastures. Because we would never choose them for ourselves. And we're like, Lord, I'm sure this is a green pasture. Trust me, it is. Lie down. Turn to him. Let me leave you with this sentence. His hand, the hand of your shepherd, will lead you tenderly, and his wounds will heal you. Father, we sit in silence, humbled, humbled by this text, Isaiah 53 coming to us through 1 Peter 2, as we learn about the suffering servant our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for him. Thank you for giving him up, your precious son, for us, so that by his wounds we might be healed, so that in his being crushed, all All of our sin is atoned for. Father, I pray that anyone here who is going astray, anyone who's running, running, running away from you, Lord, and thinking that it's giving them life, Father, I pray, please bring them back. Bring them back, Lord. 
make them lie down in green pastures. Teach them to trust you. Bring them to the shepherd and overseer of their soul. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would not resent suffering, that we would trust you, trust your word, trust your plan, trust your purpose. Know that you truly do bring us to green pastures, even if we don't see it. It doesn't make sense to us. The cross will never make sense to the natural mind. It is foolish. It is an obstacle. And yet we know that it is the wisdom and the power of God. So Father, teach us to believe in you and to embrace the way of Christ. The way of suffering. The way of forgiveness. The way of endurance. We love him. We love you. And it's in his name, for his glory, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.